Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about addiction, the difference between those expensive tests that can be ordered for you to find out what's going on inside of your body, the MRIs, the CT, and the PET scans. Also going to be talking about sexless marriage and coping with a life-threatening illness, along with hepatitis C elimination in Canada and a new treatment for addiction. I'm Maureen McGrath, and the Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Hepatitis C virus, or HCV, is a leading cause of death from infectious diseases in Canada. Almost half who have HCV don't even know it. New Canadians and injectable drug users are at increased risk for HCV and account for a disproportionate number of all cases. But there is hope. May 11th is Canadian Viral Hepatitis Elimination Day. And advocacy groups, including Centre Associatif Polyvalent Dead, Hepatite C, are meeting in Ottawa to remind health policymakers that hepatitis C is curable. Yes, we can eliminate HCV. And here to talk to us about that is infectious disease expert, Dr. Brian Conway, joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Conway. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I am well. This almost seems anticlimactic. You're covering a lot of things and a lot of consequent things happening uh, in the world uh, that are catching everyone's attention. Hepatitis C seems a little bit anticlimactic, but it does remain very important, I would say, to Canadian society. It is certainly very important. And why is it that people, or that almost half of people who have HCV don't even know it? because it does not cause symptoms until it is in its most advanced stages. Hepatitis C infects the liver, and over decades it can cause the liver to scar, something called cirrhosis in its most advanced form. It can cause the liver to fail. It can cause liver cancer, the need for liver transplantation, and it can cause death. But that happens often several decades after an individual was exposed and infected and for all that time they have no symptoms they may not think they are at risk and they may not go for testing and how would somebody have been exposed the most common exposure is through blood and as you mentioned the majority of new cases right now are in people who use or inject drugs and it only takes one time it can also be transmitted through other exposures to blood through contaminated blood although that doesn't happen any uh, anymore, and it can happen in, in, in a small number of cases through sexual exposure, mainly sexual exposure associated with, uh, with uh, exposure to blood. So those are the main ways in which it can be transmitted, and it only takes once. So if you're 60 years old and you potentially had a risk behavior when you were 25 that you may not even recall, you may be asymptomatic right now and not not suspect that you have hepatitis C. And it might be another several years or even another decade before you actually got symptoms? And and is the damage done at that stage? Well, by then, it's harder to reverse the scarring once it is more advanced. Over the past decade, we've had exposure in Canada, or availability, I should say, in Canada, to curative treatments that can be given as pills over 8 to 12 weeks have success rates of over 95%. That's why we think that it's important to try and find everyone who has hepatitis C 
even if they're asymptomatic, give them this treatment before scarring is too advanced. And, and is it easy to figure out if somebody has uh, hepatitis C? It is a simple blood test. It should probably be routine. It should be done in everyone who, uh, who goes for routine screening blood tests. Universal screening is something that many experts, including myself, have suggested. You get the blood test. If you're negative for antibodies, you could still potentially become infected through risk behaviors. But at that point in time, you're not infected. So if you have a positive test for antibodies, it turns out that 20 to 25% of people who are exposed clear the virus on their own without any treatment. So we would then do an HCV RNA test, a viremia test, and that would tell us if you're uh, actively infected and need treatment. Oh, that is just amazing. So, it, so are you suggesting that it should go along with a, a CBC, a complete blood count, for example? Absolutely. I think there's been some hesitation in terms of uh, having that test be made available. Some people would find it a bit stigmatizing. People were concerned about the cost of testing an entire population. People were, were, were the, the medications initially were very expensive and there may not have been enough available at the right price to treat everyone if, uh, if we found too many people. But none of those are, are a reality right now. This medication is available across the country. Uh, there are two main medications. One you take is one pill a day for 12 weeks. One you take is three pills a day for eight weeks. Success rates for a cure. This is a complete cure I'm talking about. Are 95% or greater in the majority of people. So it really, to me, is something that we should embrace, eliminating hepatitis C in Canada. Yeah, that is just amazing. And so if, if it's not eliminated, people are either going to die or uh, they may need a liver transplant. So effectively, this would save the government a tremendous amount of money. Absolutely. Sometimes people uh, get uh, a little uh, uh, con confused about this whole issue of saving money. I'm spending money now and it's money that I'm going to save later. But we really need to think of it that way. Is the cost of testing is, is, is pennies. The cost of treatment is going down every, every week, every month. Uh, the cost of a liver transplant, the cost uh -huh. of dealing with someone who has advanced liver disease is going up every month. And the cost of someone dying is priceless. So I think, you know, uh -huh. to me, the equation is so easy. I mean, it certainly is. It, it just makes absolutely no sense to me when uh, it's a, a, a simple blood test that doesn't cost very much and the treatment's available. And the treatment has only been available for a brief time. Is that correct? It, it hasn't been around that long. That's right. And some people remember the first uh, attempts at treatment was an injection called interferon that you had to take mm -hmm. for about a year. And it caused side effects that made you feel sick for virtually the entire year you were on treatment. So some people hesitate to get tested because they, they know someone who potentially was treated in the past and just got so sick to say, you know what, I don't want to find out because the treatment is going to be worse than, than the disease. And, and that's certainly not right. the case anymore at all. Dr. Brian Conway, an infectious disease expert at Simon Fraser University, SFU in Burnaby, British Columbia. Did I get that right? Okay, we're talking yeah. about hepatitis C, HCV. It's the leading cause of death from infectious disease in Canada. Shockingly, almost half who have HCV don't know it. 
there's room for advocacy here. And on May 11th, it's Canadian Viral Hepatitis Elimination Day, and we can eliminate HCV in Canada. This is the amazing thing. Can you tell me a little bit about this particular day and what's the goal here, Dr. Conway? So Thursday, May 11th, marks the second annual Canadian Viral Hepatitis Elimination Day. Collaborating or organizations include uh, Canadian or uh, CanHepC, uh, an organization I belong to, Action Hepatitis Canada, Canadian Hepatitis B Network, Canadian Liver Foundation, Canadian Association for the Study of the Liver. And all representatives from all of these groups will be in Ottawa on May 11th to discuss the situation with members of parliament, policymakers, other decision makers, to see if we can update our federal guidelines in terms of establishing meaningful targets that aren't in the current guidelines. Update the screening guidelines to get to universal testing that we talked about before the, the break to expedite test to treatment linkage. So if you find out you're positive, find an easy way to access treatment, increase funding, support the expansion of harm reduction programs aimed at injection drug users who are, are really fueling the pandemic right now, and to try and increase funding to help us figure out exactly how many people have hepatitis B and hepatitis C. We think there's over 204,000 with hepatitis C in Canada, but we're not sure and we need to find out. So people will be discussing this with the decision makers, trying to make it show up on their radar in a more meaningful way than it has and have concrete action across Canada to eliminate hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a lofty goal, a very ambitious goal and multifaceted yeah. and a tremendous amount of work, to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh, I applaud you and and commend you and your colleagues for this work. Um, you know, do you find that it's difficult to add to do advocacy work uh, to government? I've done it myself, and I when you go and speak to uh, government people who don't really have healthcare backgrounds, and you know they are put into a particular position or voted in, and they don't have a full understanding of, of what is going on and why something is so important. Is that a bit of a barrier here? Oh, it's a great, it's a huge barrier. I think there are competing priorities and just all of the things and just in the field of health that you mentioned at the top of the show before you got to hepatitis C, all of these things are very important and require attention. There still is a lack of understanding, I think, even at the political level of how many people in Canada this is affecting of the availability of curative treatment. And the thing we haven't talked about yet is during the COVID pandemic, treatment starts in Canada went down by about 75%. We were really doing wow. well in 2018, 2019, uh, 12,000, 15,000 treatment starts, 16,000. And now we're barely making uh, 5,000, 6,000. So it just, it's fallen off the radar with, uh, you know, a COVID pandemic will attract attention and take attention away from hep C. I have no, no problem with that. But where we are right now, we need to get back to business. Yeah, yes, you certainly do. I mean, and it's just amazing. Here we have a cure. <laughs> we have something that will work. Um, you know, for oftentimes people don't know they have cancer, for example, and they find out it's stage four and nothing can be done. But in this situation, people can find out ahead of time before it gets to liver damage, or, or even if I understand you correctly, if it becomes uh, damage to the liver, they can still get this treatment. It may not require a liver transplant, transplant, a very expensive proposition in Canada and a long wait list, I would imagine. 
everything you said is exactly uh, spot on. Get tested, get treated, get cured, get back to your life. It really, you know, the stigma of how you acquired it is certainly something that, uh, you know, we, uh, those of us have been working in this field for a long time, well, we get past it. We sort of, you know what, I don't, I'm, you're here. Something happened, something, some behavior occurred 20, 30 years ago, maybe even six or 12 months ago. Let's get rid of the hepatitis C, which we can do together. And then let's get back to addressing the other issues that are, uh, that are important. Or uh, let's just uh, say that uh, it's done and you get back to your life. Yeah, exactly. And and there can be no judgment. You know, that that's the thing. Everybody is doing their best in life and, and carrying on. And, you know, I, I really um, am so appreciative of for all the information you provided to the listeners tonight. And it's tremendous work. And I wish you all the luck in the world on May 11th, on Thursday, May 11th, when you head to the government to educate them about this incredibly important um, medical condition. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen. Chances are, you know someone who is addicted to drugs, alcohol, work, food, gambling, any one of a number of things that we become addicted to. A common myth is that addiction is a choice or a moral issue, that people have control and they should just be able to stop. This is easier said than done. One of the reasons it's so difficult to stop drinking or using drugs is due to the withdrawal, the earliest phase of sobriety. Well, there might just be something new on the horizon that can help people with that. Joining me on the line is addiction expert, Dr. Ian Rabb, who is here to tell us about a new treatment option that has great potential and can turn the lives of many addicts around. Good evening, Dr. Rabb. Good evening. How are you tonight? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me. I know it's late where you are in Manitoba this evening. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I also want to note that you're the chief clinics officer um, at the Universal Ibogaine. And that's exactly what I want to talk to you about is Ibogaine. But first and foremost, um, I, I did uh, note as well in your background, you're, you're an addiction specialist with 21 years of sobriety yourself. You founded 210 Recovery and Destiny House, Winnipeg's only sober living housing organization. And you were also the visionary and founding member of Aurora Recovery Center in Gimli, Manitoba. And, and you've faced not only addiction, but you faced homelessness as well. So you understand this very well. And, and congratulations to you on your 21 years of sobriety and also on uh, and thank you for the tremendous work that you have done over these 21 years uh, to help people who are uh, facing or living with dealing with addictions. Even earlier when I texted you, you said you were dealing with a few people in crisis at the moment. It sounds like you're on call 24 <laughs> seven. I'm, I'm um, a busy guy. Yeah. I stay busy. I, I, I can tell. And, and your latest project is Ibogaine. Can you tell the listeners what exactly Ibogaine is and why is it an important step in the treatment of addiction? So Ibogaine is actually a naturally occurring psychoactive endoalkaloid, and it's derived from a root of the African rainforest shrub uh, in, called Iboga. And uh, just, just quickly to back up a little bit, um, I, uh, I, I currently act 
um, as an interventionist, and I run Kelvin Recovery Center, which is which is uh, managed and owned by Universal Ibogaine as well. Ibogaine is not legal in Canada yet, so one of my biggest tasks is ultimately working with Health Canada and trying to get it legalized so we can actually use it legally in Canada. But as I said, it's a it's a plant from uh, from West Africa. Uh, it comes from a bark and. Uh, the, the amazing thing, and, and you're right, I, I was a doctor. I lost everything to drugs and alcohol. I ended up on the street, and uh, my father picked me up in Denver, Colorado, about 21 and a half years ago and brought me back to Winnipeg, where I got, got clean and sober and have been active in the recovery world since. And about five years ago, I was introduced to this idea of Iboga or Ibogaine and its miraculous effects in the medical use of detoxification. So it's not a silver bullet. Um, it is, uh, it, it, in my opinion, it can be used as a step in the right direction around helping people gain sobriety and get clean. The miracle of Ibogaine is the fact that we can detox someone in nine or ten hours uh, completely off of especially opiates um, and, and ultimately uh, without any post-acute withdrawal syndrome. It is a psychedelic so there will be a, a uh, and also uh, the, the um, effects of, of a psychedelic trip. But what, what I've found is that in the 22 years that I've been doing this, um, is that you, get, you can get someone very ready to engage in a conversation um, around recovery and do what they have to do quite quickly when you're actually using Ibogaine as the medical withdrawal agent. Um, we are connected to a... A facility in Mexico it is legal and there's uh, illegal uses of it in in Mexico and other countries and we're just hoping that we can kind of move the needle uh, and, and get Health Canada to see that this is a significant it would be a significant significant game changer uh, as as we're dealing with the the opioid and uh, and well I look at it as a mental health crisis in Canada and the U.S. And all over the world, actually, I mean, it's it's uh, it's devastating what's happening um, around the world now with fentanyl and carfentanil and all of the opiates and all the other drugs. So it's um, mm-hmm. for me, it's it's a game changer in in my toolbox. Ultimately, a game changer in the toolbox, you know, the recovery toolbox. Right, and and addictions are it's a complex brain disease, really, um, and it's very very challenging for people to come off of drugs or just decide to stop using or go cold turkey, if you will. Um, why is it so hard for people to detox? What, what happens? What exactly is detox, detoxing from, from alcohol or drugs? So I think, I think it's really important to understand a couple things. Addiction is a mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual problem that ultimately only has a spiritual answer. And I don't mean an answer where you got to find God or dig deep and, you know, I mean, we talk about 12-step often, and we talk about the power greater than ourselves. And but ultimately, somehow, the if you if you go back and do a little bit of research, even even as early as Carl Jung, we learn that somehow the spirit of the alcoholic or addict is cut off from the spirit or life or love or family or all sorts of things. So, in 99% of the cases, and I've worked with thousands of men and women over the last 20 years, 
you know, every single person I talk to, including myself, and probably one of the reasons I have been able to remain clean and sober, is I understood from the beginning that drugs and alcohol were not my problem. Somehow, I felt consciously separated from life. Like, my skin didn't fit. I was, uh, I was uh, socially, uh, had social anxiety. I didn't know how to relate to people. I had a lack of connection, in my case, with a perfectly normal family, upper middle class, good family, good parents, married for, for 68 years till my dad passed and, and really wonderful people. But I didn't feel connected to my parents, say like my brother and sister did. And so what happens is, is when you don't feel connected and you don't feel part of and you feel separate from and your skin doesn't fit and you've got this thinking problem, the minute you find drugs and alcohol, it, it gives you the freedom that you're looking for so you're not in constant thought of self. So ultimately, when that happens, here we are, we become addicted because uh, here I am, I find that my solution now to my problems is the fact that I found drugs or alcohol or, or gambling or sex or shopping or the internet or whatever it is at the moment. And really all I've got is I've got this ego that's absolutely obsessed with itself. It's insatiable. And it's divinely impossible to satisfy that ego. And so ultimately, I just keep getting more and more addicted because the physical craving, and this is what you're, you were talking about, is now the physical craving kicks in. So you have alcohol in your system. If you're an alcoholic, you want more alcohol. When you stop taking alcohol for a good period of time, you're still craving alcohol in your system. Same with opiates, same with cocaine, same with crap, same with amphetamines or crystal meth or whatever you're taking. So you get become addicted to it. And at that point, it's a physical thing. So when we're talking about detoxification, we're talking in the beginning really about those physical withdrawal symptoms. And they're different for every single drug. The miracle of Ibogaine is you can use them with every single drug, including alcohol, except for benzodiazepines. But it works for every other drug. It works for cocaine, it works for methamphetamine, it works for heroin, it works for uh, MDMA, it works for everything to actually detox the body in a way that doesn't exist today. So today when you're detoxing someone from opiates, for instance, you know, there's a lot of pain in the body. You feel like your bones are cracking and breaking. The reason people don't detox from it is the amount of physical pain they're in, right? With methamphetamine and uppers and, co and cocaine, it's a whole different detoxification, actually, because ultimately what's happened is you've flooded your brain chemistry so much with dopamine and serotonin that you can't feel pleasure anymore. So you stop taking methamphetamine, which is one thousand times more pleasurable than say as a kid deciding you're going to go to grandma's house and you love going to grandma's house because we have these chemicals in our brain so it's very hard to get someone off of methamphetamine and cocaine because they get very depressed and very down coming off of it and and the like uh, alcohol it's painful and you can have seizures so there's different things for each drug um, and the detoxification is different for each drug. And the miracle of Ibogaine is ultimately in, a, in an eight or nine or 10 hour trip, we can have you completely detoxed off of drugs and alcohol without post, any post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which is the most amazing thing. And we can get your brain to be reset pre-addiction. And that doesn't mean pre-abuse 
or pre-childhood trauma or pre-whatever problems you got in your life. I'm talking about the brain chemistry can be reset to pre-addiction. And ultimately, we have a much better chance of working with people and getting them to remain clean and sober and work on the things they need to work on. My guest is Dr. Ian Rabb. He is an addictions expert. Individuals with the disease of addiction lose control over their actions. They crave and seek out drugs, alcohol, or other substances, no matter the cost, even at the risk of damaging friendships, hurting family, losing jobs, losing it all. If you were listening earlier before the break, Dr. Ian Rabb lost it all. What is it, Dr. Rabb, about addiction that makes people behave in such destructive ways? And that's a really good question. And, and just, just before break, we were talking about that feeling of disconnected in families. I also work uh, very closely in the Indigenous population, and I have, I have 12 foster homes of kids that come from very, very traumatic situations, level five kids. And the interesting thing that, is, that I've found about addiction is it doesn't matter if you come from that upper middle class home with two parents um, or you come from a place where you're, you're, you're in foster care or lose a parent, when you're the addicted person or the alcoholic, we all feel the same way. And that's kind of the unique, what I found, the unique nature of being able to help people with addictions because I can get down and dirty and talk the same language as anybody that ultimately ends up in this state of mind because I've been there and felt those things at depth, um, deep within my innermost self. So it doesn't matter the context of where we come from or how we get there or why we got there. Like I said, I came from an upper middle class family. Why did I cross in the United States? Why did I cross lines into uh, the sex trade or, or stripping or the other things that I did that were really contrary to what I grew up with and what I believed in? And that, you know, there's a lot that we could talk for hours about what I believe those those, why we cross those lines. But when you become addicted and you find your drug of choice, and ultimately you decide you're going to be part of a group of people and connect with that group of people, and addiction becomes so strong, and you're constantly seeking the pleasure, and you're constantly seeking pleasure um, above both the drug and the people that you're connected to, and connection with those people, whether it's fancy or real. And so ultimately, uh, you're now connected and, and you're addicted to the lifestyle, you're addicted to the money, you're addicted to the attention, you're addicted to the drug, physically addicted to the drug. And ultimately, why we keep crossing lines, I don't know. You'd think that I was arrested seven times. I was a doctor already, and I was arrested seven times in the United States prior to me thinking maybe I'm going to be end up in here for good. And, uh, and it took, you know, it finally took, you know, my, my father, who was kind of my enabler, uh, coming and saying, I'm done. Like, I'm done with this game. We're done. Like, either you get help now or, or you're on the street. Uh, you're, you know, remain on the mm-hmm. street. And finally, I heard him. Why did I hear him? Like, why didn't seven arrests prior to that make me realize that, like, where my life was going? I, I, don't, I, I don't know. No convictions. Yeah. You know, I, I got lucky. Um, so I don't, I, you know, for me, I always, people always say, because I'm, I'm a certified interventionist, and they always say, so, you know, our, you know, our family will say, so, is, you know, is my son going to get it today? And, you know, what treat, you know, what treatment are you going to give him? And is he going to be good forever? And we can't answer that question because addiction is so elusive. 
Right. Absolutely. Well, you sound so passionate. I know you're so passionate about this and I know you're also so passionate about Ibogaine. Um, so tell me some of the results that you're having in the clinics in, in Mexico, for example, and why you're so excited about this for Canadians and other people around the world. So first of all, you would ask something about what happens in the psychedelic state. So, you know, the, the onophrenic dreamlike state that people end up in, and they ultimately experience visions that provide insight into everyday life and addressing some of the root causes. They went through fancy or real, uh, and it varies very much from person to person. But what I did when I first got asked to be involved in this process around Ibogaine is I sent 10 people to do Ibogaine that uh, di uh, different varieties of people that I'd worked with. And we sent them and they all took the Ibogaine treatment and they all went to different modalities of treatment post Ibogaine. So some went into long-term treatment, regular treatment, conventional treatment, 90 days. Some went into intensive outpatient programs. Some went back to their lives with therapy with a counselor. And what I found is we're now three and a half years later and of the 10 that I had used the Ibogaine as the medical withdrawal portion of their treatment, we now have eight out of 10 that are still clean and sober and managing their life. Mm -hmm. You know, the one thing that, uh, the one thing we also have to understand about, about Ibogaine systems um, in the brain, including the Sigma-2 receptor commonly associated with cocaine addiction and opiate receptors, as well as uh, serotonin receptors that modulate like our mood and our behaviors. Ibogaine metabolizes as noribogaine in the brain, a metabolite that kind of stays in the body for uh, you know, maybe four to six months. So we also have a period of time that we can actually work with someone. And it's in that four to six months that we really got to get busy. Noribogaine nor makes serotonin readily available in the brain. And so ultimately it helps improve mood and address the symptoms that we find, as I said earlier, also are associated with post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So ultimately, I, I always say to people, you know, you, you do an ibogaine, you do an ibogaine procedure for detox, and someone is at like six months sober on day ten, and now uh -huh. they've had an experience where they're willing to look at their life as well as an experience. Like, okay, I got to get busy with whatever recovery process I need after that. It's not like. Uh, you know, the fallacy I found about Ibogaine is, you know, 10 and done, 10 days and done, do Ibogaine, 10 days sober, and you're, you know, you're good, you're good to go for a while. But all of that stuff that builds up in our system and in our subconscious or, and in our conscious that we participated in that was either illegal or harmful to ourselves or others, it does not go away with Ibogaine. We still have to work on all that stuff, and we have to work on our own recovery if we want to have long-term success. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, it makes it easier to get to that recovery, to choose that program, whether it's a 12-step program or inpatient recovery or outpatient with a therapist. It just is the, it makes that withdrawal, that detoxification that much easier. Uh, Dr. Rab, I, I, we've learned so much from you. And it's been fantastic. I'm going to have to get you back on the program. Uh, but unfortunately, we have a heart out here and um, have to uh, go to the next segment. So, but thank you so much for uh, the information and, and best of luck to you and your continued sobriety. And I uh, really thank appreciate you. you coming on the program. You're yeah, so anytime. welcome. I'm, 
really helped, really uh, thankful to be able to share with you. Right now, we're going to be talking about, have you ever gone to the doctor and they've ordered a CAT scan or a PET scan or an MRI and you don't know why they ordered what? Or even why not just a simple x-ray? Well, joining me on the line once again, you've heard her voice before, is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She's also a speaker and is involved in leverage-based leadership. She helps you to increase your productivity and reduce your burnout, keeping you healthy in ways you never knew were possible. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me today. Oh, thank you so much for joining me once again. I really appreciate it. You know, this subject came to mind a little bit because I had a patient who had had, I think it was a CT scan and it showed a certain amount of metastases. And then the next week they actually had a PET scan and that actually showed an increased amount. And so it made me thinking, or made me start to think about the different tests and why they're ordered and what's ordered for what. And, um, you know, you hear people saying they got, had an MRI, you know, on their hip or, um, a CT of their brain. Um, so tell if you could, for the listeners and me (laughs) explain about the differences between these three different types of tests and why not just an X-ray? So we're talking PET scans, CT scans, and MRIs, and why would you have one versus the other? Great question, Maureen. So why not just an X-ray? X-rays are great, they're quick, they're easy, they're portable. Most small towns have them, but it really is just mainly showing bone, okay? When we, by the time we're doing these bigger tests like CT, MRI, and PET scan, obviously the, your care provider is concerned about a few other things. Um, like you mentioned with your friend or the person that is getting a PET scan because of the cancer, PET scan helps you, um, the radiologist, the doctor that reads the scan, detect increased cellular activity. So you can actually see tumor cells before it's actually obvious on a CT or MRI. Mm. Um so typically, we we often do say that for cancer patients, that's that's typically where I would thought the most in clinical practice. Uh-huh. Um, so does it give a clearer picture of because it was only a, a you know a week or two between the two scans? So does it give a clearer picture of the area that is being scanned? Yeah, a so PET scan. Yeah, it does. So cancer cells are rapidly dividing cells, and they take a lot of energy. So this PET scan kind of detects the hot spot. Think of like the Geiger counter for your gold or whatever. They, you know, it detects areas of heightened cellular activity, like something is going on, right, before it's mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. Are, are they more expensive, the PET scans, than, than the other types of scans? Yeah. Does that have something to do with expensive. why they're ordered? Well, oh, they're more expensive. There's, um, there's, they're definitely more expensive and not all communities have them, but they definitely mm-hmm. do help in staging disease management, checking how the patient is um, progressing, hopefully in a positive way. So, yeah, it's definitely more expensive. It's not always accessible, but a really good tool to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the PET scan, does that use radioactive substance as well? 
Yes, it does. Though we, we do say it's very small, but definitely yes, there is, and that's part of the cost too. All these isotopes cost money; like it's not cheap. So yes, there is a very small dose of radioactive substances injected. And, and so, is that danger? Is that dangerous for people? No, it's not. Um, with any of these um, procedures, there is some risk. But by the time your, your care providers decided, okay, we need a PET scan the risk of the procedure is less than the risk of not finding out. Like, not knowing that you have METs to the brain is not a good thing. So, yes, there's risk, but it's considered safe. And it's not something we do every day or, you know, just for the thought of it. Like, it's it's thought out. And, and you weigh the risk versus the benefit. Exactly. And it, it sounds like there would be exactly. more benefit. There, yeah. especially with a PET scan, which I understand can actually find the tumor before it even forms or before it's even seen on on a CAT scan, uh, a CT scan, or or an MRI scan. One hundred percent. Yeah, which is amazing. Oh, sorry. Um, so, what about a CT scan? What exactly is a CT scan? Well, what does a CT so stand for? Yeah, um, computer tomography, okay? And it uses, mm -hmm. like, it's similar to an x-ray. There's a beam to, to produce, like, detailed images in your body, and it takes, like, little um, cross-sections, like slices, like slices of a bread, right? And then it puts it together, and the radiologist can read, decipher what is going on in the organ or structure in question. Definitely the CT scan gives more detail than an x-ray, and it's mm -hmm. readily accessible, but it does require radiation. And that's something that the patient needs to be aware of. Oh, okay. Is that a higher amount of radiation than a PET scan, for example? That's a really good question. I would say it, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one, but there, I would probably wager the pet is more, um, mm -hmm. but still it's not going to damage your cells or hurt you in the, like, immediately. Radiation is a cumulative effect, right? Just like sun damage and everything. It's, it's over time. So one scan is not going to cause any problem. Multiple scans towards a diagnosis is not an issue. But again, right. the physician, the care providers, we risk we decide the risk benefit and more often than not, we're like, we need to know, we need to know if you have an injury. We need to know if there's um, a bleeding vessel. We need to know if there's a cancer and we need a test that's somewhat readily available and available in many ER departments. Unlike the MRI, obviously more expensive, more time consuming, more cost, um, not as accessible. But the good thing is it doesn't expose you to the radiation. I see. I, just getting back to the CT, for example. So um, would that would be a good question for a patient if they were if their doctor had ordered a CT versus a PET scan, for example. Um, you know, the why and also, you know, just how much radiation would they be exposed to? You know, how how dangerous is this or, or what are some of the side effects, which is another question. Yeah. Are there side effects to having a, a PET scan? Or I understand there's um, it, there's an IV that's um, yeah. you have a little bit of radioactive substance that's administered through an intravenous line. Uh, are there any adverse events with that? 
Well, with any foreign subjects introduced, there's a risk of um, allergy, anaphylactics. There are people who truly cannot take these dyes, and you wouldn't know until you actually get the dye test. Uh With any time we're puncturing the skin, there's risk of infection, right? Um, So there is definitely risk, but the risks generally are low, and the risk of not doing the test is greater than the risk of doing the test. Obviously, you don't want to be the one in the million person that has a problem, um, but generally very safe. And we, we do millions, thousands in some cities every like every week, every month. So it's an important test. Now, you asked about the PET scan. The PET scan would not be a first-line choice. We would first do, like, the basic, you know, X-ray CT and then detect, hmm, there's something going on. Or the patient has a lump uh-huh. in their skin. They do a CT scan. Okay, it looks like there's more than one lump. And then the PET scan is like, okay, now there's hot spots outside the original organ in which the disease was found, right? And that's called metastasis. So Uh um, PET scan is a test along that whole pipeline of, you know, identifying disease hopefully early before the disease burden becomes significant, causing significant loss of function in the patient. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice before. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers lawyers, doctors, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's also a leverage-based leadership speaker, trainer, and writer. Thanks so much for staying on the line with me, Dr. Mitchell. It's uh, always great to have you. You're you're in Alberta, I understand. Yes, um, I am. Yes, fortunately, you're not in the area where the wildfires are occurring. Thank God. It's horrific right now what's happening. But yes, yes, I'm fortunate not to be in the danger zone. Yes. I'm glad you and your family are safe and and can be here with us um, on the line tonight. Thank you. You're a bastion of knowledge and I appreciate that. Um, So we're talking CTs and PET scans and MRIs. I hear so many people say, you know, I had an x-ray. It didn't really show much. I need an MRI. It's been recommended that I need an MRI, but there's a nine month wait list for an MRI magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging in Canada. And, um, anyway, in certain provinces, (laughs) anyway, I'm not sure it's probably a little bit different across the country, but you could also pay eight or $900, um, being raised by an accountant. My mind automatically goes to, you need to make sixteen hundred dollars in order to pay eight or nine hundred dollars um given the taxes that you pay on that money here in canada um so it's it's an expensive proposition but you know a lot of people need it that will delay getting an mri will delay um you know waiting for one then delays treatment because if you have to wait eight or nine months if you don't have the eight or nine hundred dollars in your pocket to um shell out for that um, what exactly is an MRI and, and why do people typically need that? Great question. So it's non-invasive. It's, it's an imaging test. helps your care providers get a clear, detailed look at the organ, organs in, um, in question. And it's used to help us early, early detect and diagnose and also monitor treatment. Um, the good thing is there's no radiation however there's a magnet so we need to be mindful if you have metal pieces inside of you like pacemakers implants etc etc we use it commonly to help us um, 
diagnose, look at soft tissues. Like we love to use it for knees, for example. Like x-ray just shows bones, but you need to know what's in between the bones, right? So ligaments, meniscus, like is there a tear? So that's where the MRI is very useful. We use it commonly in the brain and other organs. So it's when the, it's not really clear. We need to know what's going on at the fuzzy edges because it's like, has this tumor, has it escaped the area in which we thought it was localized to? Are we seeing signs of mm, spread, right? And that's where the MRI comes in handy. Mm-hmm. And, and what are your thoughts on how long it takes to get an MRI? And I don't know what, it, what the wait list is yeah. in Alberta. Yeah, it's actually quite horrible across the country uh, unless you have uh-huh. $800, $900 per area to shell out. And, you know, even uh-huh. this week I had someone who did it and got their knee, knee MRI in two days. Now, the patient would have waited probably six months, nine months, a year for that same test. And, you know, for some diagnosis that needs a surgical intervention, the surgeon will not often do the procedure without getting a clear picture of what's going on. They don't like to go in blind. So um, it's unfortunate. Their weights are astronomically high right now. And that's I know. across it, the country. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing to me because, you know, if somebody's having difficulty walking, you know, that can yeah. affect their work. For example, say they work in construction. Oh, yeah. Say they have knee bilateral knee pain or, or hip pain, or um, maybe they have an overuse injury and need to yeah. have this MRI, but can't. So it keeps them out of work. They can't get the MRI for eight or nine months. You know, yeah. they might have four kids underfoot and, you know, a mortgage, a, you know, a big mortgage mm-hmm. in Canada, not unusual. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's so, it's such a delay to the diagnosis. And then it's a further delay for the treatment. You know, I, I've, I've seen the difference between the U.S. and Canada. I'm pretty comfortable yeah. between the two countries. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, certain things are a lot faster there if you have health insurance. Um, 100%. But here, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in one for all and all for one, you know, and, and taking care of, of the people. Um, so I do believe in this healthcare system, but it definitely has its flaws and, and definitely has its downsides. And, and that, I think, is one of them. 100%. I, I agree. In the U.S., a lot of times you have insurance. Okay, let's do the MRI this afternoon, tomorrow. You know, it's like that. Exactly. Here, I send patients for urgent MRIs, and it's not... You don't get an urgent MRI, unfortunately. Even if you advocate, it can be a challenge. But there's opportunity for improvement. And um, uh, there certainly is. And, and it's an ve- investment in equipment. You know, it, it's really, you know, and, and again, we were talking about this earlier on the program, just in terms of who is making the healthcare decisions, who are the policymakers? You know, there are oftentimes people who do not have a healthcare background who can't understand that, you know, you, you need to have some lost leaders and, and maybe yeah. invest in some more of these machines in the country so that more people have exposure to them. And, and also maybe train up more physicians and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different things yeah. that we can do to actually speed it up so that people are productive because that, that's really um, one of the focuses of your work is productivity and yeah, these kinds exactly. of delays and diagnosis impacts it. Absolutely. 100%. And I'm sure it's a you bottleneck. see. 
Oh, all the time. Yeah. And it impacts not just the individual, their physical, mental health, their families, the people that depend on them. And the person often deconditions, right. gets worse than because of these astronomical delays, which are not acceptable, but that's what's happening. Absolutely. That deconditioning, that is such an important word, whether people are hospitalized or whether people are unable to walk, um, you know, they may be in such pain that, you know, they might need one or two new hips. They can't walk their dog. They get out of yeah. shape. They gain weight. They get depressed. They get lonely. You know, it, one thing leads to another. I mean, that's why your health is your wealth and it's just yeah. so important. It'd be nice to have a pristine system somewhere, (laughs) somewhere in the world, you know? Um, I mean, knock on wood, I can't complain myself. I have health insurance, um, you know, in, in both countries, in fact. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard, but, um, and I, I really appreciate it, but I appreciate you coming on the program once again and, um, educating about us about this very important. really appreciate it. My pleasure, Marie. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.